first book in the Bible, Genesis. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 12, preaching a series of messages in the month of October about ancient words. Today we're thinking about ancient words about Israel as we make our choice in November for president. One of the things that we're going to determine is what kind of a friend to Israel will our nation be in the years ahead. And uh, I want us to look and see what God's word says about Israel. So when you find Genesis 12, join me in standing, please, as we show our respect for the reading of God's word. And this is the word of the living God. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. May God add his blessings to the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. Now these indeed are ancient words. These words were spoken to a young man who lived in the land of Haran. He lived with his father. His father was a wealthy man. And one day God spoke to this young man whose name was Abram. Later on he would become Abraham, the father of many. At that time he was Abram. He was single, living in his father's house. And God appeared to him and gave him a commandment. And after he followed that commandment, that is where the nation of Israel came from. And God made this promise. I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, some of God's blessings are conditional. If you do things, God will bless you. But some of God's promises are unconditional. God says there's going to be a covenant. God says, I will keep that covenant. And this is one of those covenants that God keeps. If you notice, he said that uh, it's, and later on, he says it's going to be your land forever. So God made that promise to Abram. Now, let me ask you this. Those of you who are parents and you have... Uh, kids that are, uh, maybe they've already left the nest. I never will forget when Jake came to us in 2003 and he said, I'm graduating from pharmacy school in May and I've got a job offer in North Carolina and I'm going to take it. Uh, he didn't ask my permission or Mary's permission. And uh, I remember as we stood in the front yard watching Jake's uh, truck pull out of sight as he uh, headed to North Carolina for the first time, uh, Mary was standing there crying and I was inside doing a little dance. <laughs> the nest is empty. The nest is empty. Long way to fly back from North Carolina. But uh, we love Jake. And, and we, but he said that was God's will for his life. And I can't question what he says. But now, if he had come to me and said, hey, Dad, God spoke to me, I would have said, good, son. I'm glad God's speaking to you. And he said, God told me to get out of your house. I would have said, amen. Listen to the Lord. The Lord is wise indeed. And he said, and I said, well, Jake, where are you going? I don't know. Well, what are you going to do when you get there? I have no idea. Well, how are you going to live? I don't know. Well, he didn't say any of that. He said, I got a job, and I'm going to North Carolina, and he's worked hard. Now he's got a wife, and, and she's a pharmacist as well, so I don't know that he'll ever live in Alabama again, but that's okay. That's God's will for his life. I have to say amen to that. Even if I don't like it, I have to say amen to it. And that's what happened to kids. They grow up, and they're supposed to leave home. Uh, now, some of them don't. I mean, I've, you know, I've talked to people who said, when you say Jake uh, grew up and left home, tell me what you did. Tell me what the secret is to getting them to do that. 
And I thought, well, I don't know. I guess, you know, the pro prospect of a job was pretty good for him. But uh, let, me, and let me say this, young people. There's a time for you to get out of mom and daddy's house. Uh, when you marry, for example, get out of mom and daddy's house. Uh, don't marry and move in with mom and daddy. If you're not ready to have a home, then wait a while about getting married. I, I tell people that all the time. Sometimes they don't like to hear it, but that's good advice because you're to be bonded to one another. You can't bond. It's hard to bond with one another when you're in mom and daddy's house. So uh, Abram did what God told him. Now, you can imagine what his dad felt like. Well, I don't know where he's going. I don't know how he's going to live. But he says this is a God thing, so I'm going to let him do it. And so Abram followed. In fact, that's what it says in verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. But God made this promise to Abram. He said, get out of your land, out of the kindred, out of your father's house, into land I will show you. It was a faith promise. And that faith promise still exists today. It's called Israel. Dr. Jerry Falwell wrote a book in 1980 called Listen, America, and he said these words and how prophetic they are. One of the most encouraging things I see in the world today is God's continued blessing on the tiny nation of Israel. Well, Israel is no longer a tiny nation. Israel now has 6 million Jewish people living there, and it is indeed a thriving nation. Uh, many of us have been there. We're planning on going again next year. Some of you have been asking, are you ever going to go back to Israel? Well, we're in the process of planning a trip probably right after Christmas in 2013. We're going to leave. We're going to go and visit the land where Jesus walked. And it's going to be a great time. And we'll be glad to have you join us if you want to go. Uh, the Lord may come before then and we'll get to go there free. That way, that's the best way to go. And I, I like to ride horses. We're going to come riding on white horses. I've always wanted a white horse. And uh, God's going to provide that someday. So one, one or two ways, I'm going to go back to Israel, Lord willing. But uh, Israel is still being blessed today. Now, I want us to notice really two things today. First of all, God's promise to Israel. In Genesis 13, 15, God said this to Abram when he reached the, the promised land. He said, for all the land which thou seest, will I give it, and to, thy, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And then notice those last two words, forever. Now, I want to tell you, when God says forever, he means forever. I'm thankful that we as Baptists believe uh, in once saved, always saved. We believe in eternal security. When God saves you, he redeems you. The blood of Christ is applied to your life. You are saved forever. You say, wait a minute, preacher. I knew this guy one time, and he joined the church, and he lived right for a while, but then he became a reprobate. Listen, you know, only God can see what's in the human heart. But I know this, when God saved me in the, corn, in the cornfield in 1964, I was saved forever. I knew that. When I got up off the ground, I don't know how I knew that, but I knew God had me in the palm of his hand, and I would never be separated from him again. Because when God saves you, makes a promise, he keeps his promises. And he promised Abram, he said, I'm going to give it to you and to your seed forever. So the promise was given to Abram. At this time, Abram had no children. Uh, and later on, he had two children. He had a son named Ishmael by a slave girl, and he had a son Isaac by Sarah. Isaac was the son of the promise. Ishmael was the son of the flesh. And the descendants of Ishmael are the Palestinians, and the descendants of Isaac are the Israelis. And they don't get along to this day, and they never will get along. The Bible says that there's going to be enmity between those two until they sit down with Jesus in the millennial kingdom, and then there'll be true peace on earth. 
But God made a promise to Abram, and then the promise was fulfilled. If you've read the Old Testament this year, you know the story of Moses, how God raised up a deliverer and sent him to the land of Egypt where he was a wanted man. There was a price on his head. He could have been executed on sight, but God said, go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And so for 40 years, Moses led God's children in the wilderness. And because of Moses' disobedience, God told him to speak to a rock and water would come out. And in frustration, Moses struck the rock. And God said, because you did not obey exactly what I told you to do, you can't go into the promised land. And that ought to teach us how important God's word is. When God says something, he means it. And he has said a lot in the pages of this book. I want to tell you, I'm not going to tell you what I think about Israel today. I'm going to tell you what God thinks about Israel today. And as we elect a president, we need to be concerned about how that president will view Israel. Will he view Israel as just another player in the stage of world events, or will he view Israel as a nation blessed by a sovereign God? But the promise was fulfilled through Moses. And then Moses died, and he saw the children going into the promised land, but he could not go with them. But Joshua led them into the promised land. And what had been a family in Egypt now was a mighty nation. And they overcame some of the fiercest people in the world with God's help. The walls of Jericho fell. And victory after victory was given to them. They had defeats as well. You know when they had defeats? When they didn't listen to God. When there was sin in the camp. That ought to tell us something right there. God never blesses sin. And so they inhabited the land. And then there grew a time when they did not have a king and they had judges. And inevitably there was a cycle. There'd be a good king or a good judge and the people would respond to God. And, and then they would take God for granted and they would get into sin. And then God would send a, a, a people to attack them and to put them in bondage, and then they would cry out to God, and he would send another deliverer who was a judge. And that cycle is repeated about seven times in Judges. You'd think they would have learned. Finally, they said, we want a king. And when Samuel went to God and said, the people want a king, I don't want to give it to them. You know what he told Samuel? He said, Samuel, the people have not rejected thee. They have rejected me. I was their king. Nevertheless, I've heard their cry, and I will give them a king. And he gave them King Saul. And Saul was a pretty good king. He had problems, but Saul uh, established the kingdom of Israel, did a lot. He was a warring king. And then after Saul was the great King David. And David was also a warrior king. He fought many battles. He killed giants. And, and God helped him in all that. But then David had a son named Solomon. And the word Solomon comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Solomon means peace. And God gave Solomon great wisdom. And during Solomon's reign in Israel... Israel was the major world power. You go back and read in Kings and Chronicles how the rest of the world was in fear of Israel and Solomon never had to fight a battle because people were so afraid. There's a, there's a great lesson there. Uh, people need to respect you as a nation. If people respect you as a nation, they're going to think twice about attacking you or attacking your embassies, as it were, because they fear you. People feared Solomon so much they wouldn't attack him. But then again, sin entered the camp. And there was a divided kingdom. And then the promise was shattered. They had lived in the land for 490 years. 
And God had given them a command that every seven years the land was to lie fallow. The land was to be given a Sabbath rest every seven years, one year of rest. And they did not heed that. They were making crops and they thought, well, this is a sign of God's blessing. God's blessing us every year. We're not going to let that land lie fallow a year. We're going to keep on producing crops. For 490 years they took God for granted. And then came the Babylonians and took them into exile. And Jeremiah had written it down, and Daniel was praying one day, Oh God, return us to Jerusalem. Let us go back and be in Jerusalem again. And Daniel was reading the prophecy of Jeremiah, and he read in there where Jeremiah said, They're going to stay in that land 70 years. And Daniel started changing his prayer. He said, Lord, let me be here when the 70 years is over. I want to go back to Jerusalem. That was his prayer because he knew God had made that promise. And after 70 years... A remnant was returned. And then later on, most of the people came back. They never reached the level of success they'd had under Solomon ever again. In fact, from the reestablishment of Jerusalem, there's a tragic story about how the people became complacent about God. In fact, if you want to read that tragic story, you read it in the book of Malachi, the last book in the Bible. And you know what Malachi says? He said the reason the people are corrupt is because the priests are corrupt. That's a good place for amen right there. Because I want to tell you, you say, who's the priest? Me. I'm the priest here. I'm the preacher. I'm the prophet. And if the prophet's corrupt, the people are corrupt. We need to understand that. You read the book of Malachi. It is so sad. But even in the book of Malachi, there's a promise about what God will do for his people if they'll return to him. And by the way, do you know that's God's favorite word, return? I love that. In, in the New Testament, it's translated a lot of times, repent. But God said to Isaiah, return to me, says the Lord. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God says, let's reason together. He always wants us to come. But... The promise was shattered. They were taken into exile. They lived in Babylon. They lived in Persia. They were restored in 450 B.C. And for over 400 years, they just existed because the priesthood was corrupt. There was a time of revival under the Maccabees, but it didn't last long. And by the time Rome took over, about 43 B.C., Israel was no longer a great nation. In fact, from then on, it has been ruled by other people. They rebelled against Rome in 70 A.D. Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls were torn down. Salt was sown into the fields around Jerusalem by Roman soldiers so they couldn't even grow crops there. Sheep could not graze because the land would not even grow grass. If you go there today and see those same hillsides, they are abundant with fruit and with grain. Israel has been blessed by God. Now what had been a desert is now an abundant land. But Israel was reborn on May 14, 1948. There were two great players in that rebirth. There was Great Britain, and Great Britain had begun being a friend of Israel back in the 1800s. But in the 1900s, it came to America, and President Harry Truman, who, by the way, was a Southern Baptist, signed the document on May 14, 1948, recognizing the statehood of the nation of Israel. A rabbi named Isaac Herzog came to President Truman and said this. Uh, you talk about being prophetic. He said, President Truman, God put you in your mother's womb 
so that you would be the instrument to bring about the rebirth of Israel after 2,000 years. A nation was born in a day. Now that date is special to me because I was born on May 7th, 1948. I like to tell people I'm a week older than Israel. And they look at me and they say, yeah, I could tell that. You know, somebody said we're singing ancient words because we're going to hear from the ancient one. I, you know, that's, that's all right. But I'm as old, I'm, in fact, I'm a week older than Israel. And so Israel has been there my, almost my entire life except for one week. And by the way, I was born on Friday night. They were born on Friday night. And so exactly one week apart. So Israel has always been prominent in my life because we celebrate about the same birthday. I know how old I am because a week later Israel is the same age that I am. I'm 64, Israel's 64. God kept that promise. And for the first time since 73 A.D., God's people are living in the land God promised to them. But not only did God make a promise to them about the land, God promised to protect them. Notice he said to Abram, I will bless him that blesseth thee and curse him that curseth thee. And then in Zechariah 2.8, and there's a, a misprint there. I'm going to read it like it should be, and you can change it in your order of worship if you want to. It says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory that he sent me, or hath he sent me, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, for he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. Now that is an exp expression that's in the King James Version of the Bible that we've come to use, apple of your eye. That means something you delight to see. That means something that brings you joy. And you've used that phrase, you may not have realized it, it literally comes from the pages of God's Word. Zechariah reminds the Jews what God had said about them in Deuteronomy 32, 9 and 10. And he had Moses write these words, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Now Israel is an ancient nation. The people are ancient. Uh, Hebrew is one of the oldest languages in the world. In fact, if you study ancient languages, there are not many languages any older than uh, Hebrew, and most of them have the same common root. Uh, they are all so old. But God has promised to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. Let, let me give you a little history lesson. You know, I have to do this because so many of you are, are history deprived. You don't understand uh, why things are the way they are. You just think they've always been this way. Young people think we've always had cell phones. You know, you start talking to people, about young people say, well, we didn't have cell phones when I was growing up. And they said, were you on the wagon train? No, almost, but not quite. But no, I wasn't on the wagon. We didn't have cell phones growing up. In fact, we had television. It wasn't color. It was black and white. The box was, was huge, and the screen was about this big. And, and they said if you sat up close enough to watch it, you'd go blind. So we all sat across the room watching these little stick figures on that little black and white screen, and uh, at halftime, the picture would go out, and uh, we had antennas, rabbit ears, and everybody knew how to repair their television. What you did is you moved the ears around, and then if it didn't work, you whopped it in the back. And uh, my daddy had one one time. It was a Crosley. He whopped that thing one time so hard it just went off. He killed the television. And I want to tell you, my mother was so mad, she made him go down and get another one because she said, we got to have television. It was on about six hours a day in those days. How many channels? Well, I think there were two at that time. Uh, you know, you could watch on one channel or watch the other channel or just, just sit there and look at each other. But uh, people don't understand that. But let me tell you about America. 
the roughest time America has had up until recently was called the Great Depression. The stock market fell in November 1929. People lost millions of dollars. Unemployment during the Great Depression was sometimes as high as 40 to 50 percent. We think it's bad having 10 percent or 12 percent unemployment. Employment was 40 to 50 percent during the Great Depression. People literally were standing in line to get bread and soup because they didn't have anything to eat. They were literally starving to death in America. And we tried everything to get out of the Depression. And if you want to study history, you'll find out what I'm telling you is true. How did we get out of the Depression? We got caught up in World War II. And we started producing, instead of producing cars and things like that, trucks, we started building planes and tanks and bombs and guns. And we were involved in the greatest armed conflict the world has ever seen, World War II. Millions of people died. Six million Jews were annihilated by Adolf Hitler in his concentration camps in Germany. The darkest period in the history of mankind, World War II. And after World War II, we came out of World War II and all these GIs came back and they needed a place to work. Some of them went to school on the GI Bill. And then in 1948, we recognized Israel as a state. You say, do you remember that? No, I don't remember it. I've read about it in a book. But I want to tell you, I grew up in the 50s. Some of you were alive in the 50s. And if you were alive in the 50s, you'll remember that that was one of the greatest periods in American history. People had cars. They had homes to an extent not ever seen before. Now, why do you suppose that happened? Do you just think God was sitting up in heaven saying, all right, they've suffered enough through the Depression and through World War II. I think I'll bless America and make it a great nation. I think it was because we were one of the few nations in the world that recognized the statehood of Israel in 1948. And throughout the years, Great Britain was their first great friend. Now Great Britain has turned their back on Israel. And if you notice, Great Britain is no, no longer as great as it was. They used to say that the sun never set on the British Empire. They can't say that today. Right now, they are a minor player. When you look at the United States and when you look at Russia and when you look at China, Great Britain is a minor player. I think they lost their greatness when they turned their back on Israel. There is a lesson here for us as Americans. First of all, God promised, I'll bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. We need to understand God's blessings on America are exactly related to how we treat Israel. Another more modern lesson, President Jimmy Carter was elected in 1976. He was elected the day I took my doctoral exam at New Orleans Seminary. I had to take an oral exam. I went and voted in the election, drove to New Orleans, took my test, drove back to Millery where we were living, found out I'd passed the the test and got my doctorate, also found out Jimmy Carter was elected president. During his presidency, Jimmy Carter said, I'm going to make peace between the Israelis and the Arab nations. And some of you remember this. They had a big peace talks at Camp David. And they worked out an agreement between Egypt and Israel. And that was after the Six-Day War and the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And Israel was, for the first time, in control of all of Israel and in control of Jerusalem for the first time in history. And President Jimmy Carter sat down and they signed an agreement. Let me tell you what that agreement did. We built an air base for Israel. We built an air, air base 
for Egypt. We built the air base for Israel in a unique place. We built the airfield for Egypt in a unique place. The airfield for Egypt was built in the Sinai Peninsula, which is where Moses and the Israelites crossed on their way back to Canaan during the Exodus. We built the airfield for Israel in a very prophetic place. If you go to Israel, you'll stand on the top of Mount Carmel. On the top of Mount Carmel is a monastery. On our first trip to Israel, we were standing on the top of that monastery, and all of a sudden I heard the roar of jet engines, and I looked up and I saw what was an American fighter plane with Israeli markings because we are their ally. We supply a lot of their arms. They pay for it, but we supply them. I saw that Israeli fighter jet come over the top of Mount Carmel. It was so close I could see the face of the pilot. That's why the engines were so loud. That plane, that plane went down into the valley in front of Mount Carmel, and it kept going down and kept going down, and all of a sudden it just vanished. The jet noise was gone. The plane was gone. I thought, there's fixing to be a big explosion somewhere. Dead silence. And I thought, well, that was kind of weird. And in a moment, here came another one. And it flew low, and it came down. And I videoed that plane. I've got a video of that Israeli jet landing in an underground air base that we built and it's in the valley of Jezreel. That may not mean much to you but it's also called the mountain near there is called the Mount of Megiddo. In Hebrew it's Har Megiddo. In English it's Armageddon. We built an underground air base at Armageddon. Now, is there peace between the Arabs and the Jews today? No. Now, there's a nation over there, an ancient nation, that has a very radical leader who was just here in the United States. And of all days, he was here on the Day of Atonement. And he spoke to the UN on the Day of Atonement. Friend, there's going to be enmity between Ishmael's seed and Isaac's seed until Jesus comes. Now, I have good news for you. One day, we'll sit down at the table those of us who are followers of Jesus and the children of Ishmael and the children of Isaac will sit down together at a table where there will be peace for a thousand years. You know why? Because Jesus Christ is going to be reigning on the throne of his father David in Jerusalem. That will be the only time this old troubled world has peace when the prince of peace reigns on the throne of his father in Jerusalem. And that time will come. But as long as he's not reigning, there's going to be enmity between the Arabs and the Jews. The Arabs hate, and by, by the way, let me just say this. Anybody that hates Israel probably hates us too because we've been a friend of Israel. In fact, the leader, and I use that term loosely, the leader of Iran, Ahamenejad, you have to clear your throat when you say it. He said, aren't you scared you'll rile him up? Let him get riled up, all right? He riles me up enough, let him get riled up. You know what he said? He said, I want to do in one second what it took Hitler seven years to do. I want to kill six million Jews in one second. How would he do that? A nuclear explosion. And you know what he said after that? He said, after we take care of Israel, we're going to take care of the U.S. Now, folks, you say, well, maybe we ought to pull back a little bit on being a friend to Israel. What did God say? I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. When you go to the polls in November, you need to vote for the person, the nominee, who's going to promise to be the best friend to Israel. Now you say, that's politics. No, it's not politics. It's Bible. 
The Bible says, I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Here's some action points. First of all, become aware of replacement theology, which is taught by many pastors, professors, and Bible teachers. Those who hold this view believe that the church replaced Israel and God's promises to Israel are null and void. They deny the rebirth of Israel as a sign from God, and they wish to give the land, the entire land, most of them, back to the Palestinians. And there are preachers this morning preaching that from their pulpits. You won't hear that from this pulpit because we believe the Bible, and the Bible says, I'll bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. We need to become aware of the attitude toward Israel by political candidates. When a nation and her leaders bless Israel, they are blessed by God. That little history lesson I gave you, I grew up in the 1950s. I loved growing up in the 1950s. I really did. We, we had prayer in schools. We had Bible reading in schools. We even had people come to the schools and preach when I was in school. I mean, they didn't just come in and give you a character lesson. They came in and said, you need to get saved. Now, boy, if you did that today, you'd get kicked out. You can't do that anymore. Why? Because people that didn't want it in there spoke up louder than we did. And we knew better. And what do we have now in schools? We have metal detectors and police officers trying to keep kids from killing one another. You see, happy days were 1950s. Why? I think they were because we blessed Israel in 1948. And God blessed us for blessing Israel. And God will continue to bless us if we bless Israel. And then here's something we can do personally. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're commanded in the Bible. That is a biblical command. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And you know the sad thing about Jerusalem? You know what the name Jerusalem means? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. City of peace. There have been more battles fought over Jerusalem than any other place in the world. And yet God calls it the city of peace. You say, well, isn't that atrocious? No, it's a promise. <laughs> it's a promise. You say, what's it a promise of? It's a promise of the day that will come when we'll sit down in the millennial reign. And there will be peace on earth. You say, how will there be peace on earth? Well, the Bible says the lion will lay down by the lamb. The Bible says they'll beat their swords into plowshares. The Bible says there'll be no more war during that thousand years. There will literally be peace on earth when the Prince of Peace reigns in Jerusalem. Now, here's the practical message for you today. You say, preacher, I wish he'd come reign in my life. He will. He will. But you have to welcome him. You have to say, Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you. You gave your life for me. I'll surrender my life. And by the way, folks, let me say this. Don't think that just because you signed a card or just because you prayed a prayer or even just because you were dunked in the baptistry, that means you're saved forever. You're saved forever when you give your heart and life to the Prince of Peace and he becomes the absolute Lord and Master of your life. And you're not saved if that hasn't happened. You say, boy, that's hard preaching. You know why it's hard? I don't want you to stand before Jesus and you say, Lord, I did a lot of stuff for you. I was a member at Brother Mike's church. I went and heard him preach. and I even laughed at all those old corny jokes he told over and over again. Lord, I was a good member at First Baptist Pelham. And the Lord's going to look at you and say, never knew you. Depart from me. The fear of my heart is that somebody will hear me preach and say, well, all you have to do is just say a prayer, sign a card, get baptized. No. How did we get salvation? Jesus suffered, bled, and died, and gave his life. And Jesus said this, whoever would come after me must deny himself 
take up his cross and follow me. I will never preach easy believism. That's the kind of things where you'll hear, I never knew you. Today, 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 you have peace in your soul. With all the trouble in the world, I want to tell you, I'm in perfect peace today. Why? Because the Prince of Peace is reigning in my life. I surrendered to him anew and afresh this morning. Chris Godfrey and I went out yesterday and we did our move. And Don, I heard you talking about, you can do this in 45 minutes, not if you're the pastor. We probably had the shortest street of anybody. It took us nearly three hours. I came back, I was like a dog. I, uh, 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 uh. But we got it done. We went to our neighbors. We invited them to come to the fall fest. We asked if we could pray for them. We found most of them at home, didn't we, Chris? Very few people weren't at home. Why would you do that? Because I want everybody to know Jesus like I know him. Because when you know him, you're saved. And when you know him, you're surrendered to him. And when you know him, he'll give you peace. There may not be peace in this world, but if you're following in the footsteps of Jesus, walking where he wants you to walk, living like he wants you to live, you'll have peace in your heart that no money can buy. Do you have that today? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words about Israel. And Lord, the world is a troubled place, but thank you for telling us that you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Father, I pray that we would have our minds on you. And Lord, as uh, we have an election here in America, Lord, I don't care what the polls say and I don't care what all these political commentators say. Father, I pray you'd give us wisdom to see through all the vernacular that's going on and see into the hearts of the candidates and see, Lord, which candidate will be the best friend to Israel, which candidate will lead our nation to be a friend of Israel, even in times of trouble. Not just when everything's going great, but in times of turmoil, which leader would be a friend to Israel? Because you've said, I'll bless them that bless them, bless you and curse them that curse you. Father, I pray today for people who need peace in their life, that they'd find that peace through inviting the Prince of Peace to be their Savior, Lord, and Master. And I thank you, Father, that the more we know him, the more we love him, and the easier it is to follow him. Father, I pray you'd bless those who have troubles today. Lord, I know in this crowd there are people with broken hearts. There are people dealing with issues that they cannot overcome without your help. But Father, I pray that the Prince of Peace would come to dwell in their lives and hearts and homes today, that we might have peace in our hearts and our homes like we've never known before because we're following daily the Prince of Peace through every day of our life until you call us home or come for us. In Jesus' name.